We are continuing our study of friendship this morning, uh, a study that we've been engaged in since uh, early last month. And we're taking on this issue because it is such a profound need for each one of us. We've, we've seen that friendship is not a nice add-on to the Christian life. Godly friendships and wise friendships are really at the heart of following Jesus Christ. We need to walk with Jesus along with others. And so there are many things that we're seeing about the significance of friendship. And um, what we've been looking at in Proverbs has just shown us all of the different ways in which our treatment of the people around us and our, our treatment and building of godly friendships is really at the heart of our character. Um, we have repeated every week that it has never been easier to make friends. We can make friends fast today in many different ways, but it is harder and harder to make fast friends who stick with you over the long haul. And so we are studying what God's wisdom has to say about friendship and uh, what it has to say in particular about building friendships and this morning, nourishing them. Um, we have talked about many of the different ways we feed friendships with uh, relational junk food. Uh, and a, a lot of friendships, even though they grow up quickly, they, um, they spread quickly, uh, nevertheless, they're more like weeds than a harvest. They end up choking out our life. They end up many times filling us with grief because we find our people we've expected to be our friends turning their back on us, betraying us, treating us in cruel ways. And so one of the aspects that we're looking at is the fact that we need to be stewards of our friendships and that we need to uh, really approach this issue um, as a character issue, as, as something that it is very important to build into the foundation of our life, that uh, we are to take uh, a deep, abiding, profound interest in our friendships from God's point of view. And when we do that, we find that our friendships become fruitful, not just a proliferation of weeds, and as we're going to see in a moment, thorns. Uh, how do we do this? We've, uh, we've talked about building friendship from a biblical point of view the last couple of weeks. We saw that Solomon, in the wisdom of God in Proverbs, is basically saying if you want to build friendships, start by building your character. Uh, someone who loves purity of heart will have the king as a friend, he said, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So it, there, there are these moral and spiritual laws that govern relationships that God designed for us. And the more that we see Christ transform our character, purify our hearts, the more we're ready to be friends who will be fruitful and nourishing to the people around us. We saw that part of this is driving out, scoffing some of the relational junk food that we feed our friendships with is often just scoffing, mocking, making fun of people uh, we disagree with or who are different from us or who drive us nuts, whatever it may be. We can build whole relationships on scoffing. And the, the Proverbs are very strong on this. Drive out the scoffer and quarreling will cease and so will abuse. So we've talked about that kind of character work. Last week we talked about flattery um, and the fact that uh, very often we feed our relationships, try to build our friendships with the junk food of flattery, giving the impression of love to someone without the reality of it. And so we talked about uh, the fact that it is very important to be a real encouragement to people with real love and not through the deception of trying to give the impression of being loving with an agenda. And so we've, we've been talking about all of these character issues in terms of building friendships. We're going to shift gears this morning. Let's suppose 
you've got a good start on building a friendship. You've, you've got some key relationships in your life and you're working on those character issues and you're seeing the fruit of that. Now the question is, what does God's wisdom have to say about nourishing that friendship? How do you feed it? How do you uh, strengthen it? How do you fill it with the good nourishment of God's grace, his mercy, his wisdom, and above all else, his love? How do we do that? We're going to spend a couple of weeks on that uh, question this morning of nourishing our friendships once we have started building them. So this morning, we're going to look, first of all, at the way not to nourish a friendship. How, if you were to want to poison a friendship, how would you do it? So we, we're going to ask that question first. We're going to look at the thorns that grow up around us from Proverbs chapter 11. Then we're going to go to the fruit of good, wise, godly friendship. What does that look like? Um, how do you feed that? How do you nourish it? What does Proverbs have to say about that? And then we're going to look at the root of all friendship, and that is Jesus, and how the wisdom of Proverbs is really telling us how Jesus works and how he works with us and in our relationships. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's dive into Proverbs 11 and look at the thorns that very often surround us um, when our relationships become a bunch of weeds that grow up fast, take up soil, deplete us, and then return pain for what we give to them, when that starts to happen, very often it's not just weeds you find in your relationship, but thorns. Let's look at this. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Um, if we want to understand how to nourish a friendship, we need to understand something about how friendships get poisoned and destroyed. Um, two ways to destroy a friendship uh, from Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, um, beginning verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor or friend lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Two ways to destroy a friendship and turn it into a thorn in your side instead of a source of strength and power and grace. The first way is belittling. Kind of a old word, um, one that isn't used very often anymore, but it's, uh, it's used here in this verse by the English Standard Version, whoever belittles his neighbor or friend. Remember, whenever you see that word neighbor in Proverbs, you kind of have to put a slash mark next to it, say neighbor or friend, because they're, it's the same word and it kind of depends on context which word you go with. So this is the person who is near to you, who is around you, the person who lives next door to you or who is often uh, in your house, uh, someone you share a lot of activities with. This is a friend, someone who's close to you, whoever belittles his neighbor or friend lacks sense. So this is berating, criticizing, um, denigrating. Uh, and you could look at this one of two ways. Many people have, have just developed a, a, a personality where they're constantly critical to someone's face. And when you see them you, you're just you're constantly on the receiving end of uh, comments that are just kind of meant to lower you down a notch, and uh, so this this kind of person always says, "Well, I just call it like I see it. It's just take it or leave it. What you see is what you get. If it's on my mind, I'm gonna say it." Yeah. 
So Proverbs says here that the person who belittles his neighbor lacks sense. So in all of that criticism, in all of the denigrating kind of comments, Proverbs, Solomon, the Holy Spirit is saying, your driveway relationally here doesn't reach all the way to the street. You lack some sense here of what do you think is going to happen if everything that you say to a person is critical, derogatory, and denigrating. If the only thing that they see of you is just constant attack on, uh, or criticism of who they are, what they do, the kind of work they do. And uh, Solomon isn't going to cut any slack to us when we do this and claim that we're just being sincere. Solomon's going to come right back and say to us, you can be sincere and have sense too. You can be sincerely wise and gracious. You don't have to be sincerely critical. So very often people um, just develop this kind of, of way of relating to people and pretend that they're just being sincere. Uh, another person, I love this one in particular, this is the person who claims to have the gift of prophecy. They always settle on the gift of prophecy, sometimes exhortation. That's just me. The Lord's gifted me with the gift of prophecy, so I say this stuff. And it, yes, it seems to be belittling and it seems derogatory, but it's actually for your own good. And it's coming from the Lord. Nonsense. Nonsense. Paul says something very interesting. Even if it were true that somebody had the gift of prophecy. Paul says the spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. In other words, you can choose your time. You can choose the way you want to put something across to somebody. There is, again here, just because the spirit of God has given you insight, and we're going to say, even if it's true that the Spirit of God has given you this belittling criticism of another person, and I'm nowhere near buying that, by the way, but even if it is true, Solomon comes back at us and says, just because it's the Spirit of God doesn't mean you can exercise no sense. You still have to have a relational understanding of what it does to a person when you belittle them, berate them, denigrate them. So there is this kind of face-to-face -face thing, but I find that most often this proverb is going to apply to the person who is um, very affirming, encouraging to your face, but you turn your back and they're belittling you, uh, berating you, saying nasty things about you, mocking you. Um, if you have ever found out that someone you thought was in your corner and on your team actually has nothing but contempt for you and your decision-making and your capabilities and berates you behind your back to all of your other friends, you know how much that hurts. If you want to lose a friend and poison a friendship, works every time. Belittle them berate them, that'll do the trick. So if we want to know something about nourishing a friendship, one of the first things we need to understand is we, even though um, the wound of a friend is uh, done in faithfulness, even though that's true, it is still done with good sense and it is not done with a kind of belittling derogatory attitude. It is done with care for someone's dignity and someone's well-being, even if they need to receive, or especially if they need to receive that, that kind of criticism or confrontation. Here's a second way to uh, be a thorn and to poison a friendship, and that is slander. Verse 13. Actually, I skipped something here. I, I need to make a comment about the second line of verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains what? 
silent. You see this a lot in Proverbs. Um, I'd have to look up the address, but there's a proverb that says, a fool only rejoices in expressing his opinion, but a wise man quietly holds it back. There's a time to speak, and there's a time to zip it. And the man of understanding, the woman of understanding, most of the time is going to say, I think I'm going to zip it right now. I'm going to be silent on this one. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to prioritize whether this statement that I think needs to be made, whether this is actually as important as my gut instinct tells me it is. I don't know about you, but my gut instinct is often wrong. So if I follow my gut, it's no guarantee that I am right. I may just be destructive. And so a man of understanding remains silent. If you're feeling like your friend needs to hear something, the first thing to do is not to open your mouth. The first thing to do is to ponder and pray, consider, turn the tables, ask, what would I want to hear if I were in my friend's shoes? Uh, these kinds of questions have saved me a lot of grief just by building time into a process where I think confrontation needs to happen very often. Um, I come to the conclusion this confrontation doesn't need to happen at all. I need to just be patient on this issue. And uh, so uh, I would commend that to you. I actually use this as a father. Um, there are a lot of things where uh, I might see something in the boys that I, I say, hmm, not sure about that at all. In fact, I don't like that at all. And one of the things that I've learned is that it is very helpful to them and to me if I just kind of push pause on a confrontation there. Wouldn't I prefer it better to be confronted with something in private rather than in front of friends or family or something like that? Wouldn't I prefer it if, if my dignity were upheld in that situation? And I almost always find, yeah, I would kind of prefer to be called out one-on-one -on -one rather than in public. And so I have, have found that a lot of my folly gets uh, kind of thrown out in the trash where it belongs when I build time into my parenting. I don't just rush into confronting something even when it needs to be confronted. I'm not saying you should duck something that needs to be said, but here is Proverbs saying belittling lacks sense. We don't want to be in that kind of position. So slandering is the same kind of thing. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. How many secrets do you know? If you did an inventory of them, I think you'd probably realize you know a lot of secrets. And uh, you, you might say, well, I've... I'm not in, you know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a pastor, I'm not in, in any of those kinds of things, I'm not at the CIA, uh, I don't need to keep all of these secrets, I don't have a lot of secrets. Let me just encourage you that you have more secrets in your care and under your stewardship than you may realize. Uh, here's how I define a secret. Anything that I do not have explicit permission to share is a secret, and I treat it that way. Um, if someone even meets with me about an issue, I've learned that people don't meet with me unless there is something really important on their hearts and minds they need to work on. And so 
uh, I try to watch my mouth and not even reveal in conversation something that might seem to be innocuous. Oh, well, they wouldn't mind if other people knew that they met with me. They might mind very much. And so part of my job is learning that everything is secret unless I am told otherwise. And in, it, 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 since I, I've been operating with that policy, it saves me a whole lot of grief. Because then, as long as I follow it, which I, I am not perfect at doing, uh, but as long as I follow it, I don't step on people's toes where they're assuming that what they say to me is going into a deep, lockdown place. And uh, those, those kinds of, that kind of confidence is very important. So here's what I would say to you if you're not in that kind of position. If you were to live the way I live and view everything that is told you as a secret until you are given permission to share it, you would become the fast friend of many people because you would become safe. You would become the person you could talk to and know for certain this is going nowhere else. Um, you, would, you would have uh, the confidence of the people around you that they could retain their dignity if they shared an uncomfortable thing with you. And uh, so I would encourage you in our ongoing project of becoming that safe church where you really can say what's on your mind. Treat these things as secret unless you have explicit permission to reveal them and or, or unless you know for certain through some understanding with someone that you can reveal that thing. If you do, you are taking care of the dignity of the people around you. So this second line of this proverb, he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Listen. It is better when we do not see each other's dirty laundry. It is good for us to have clear boundaries in sharing what is hurtful, deep, and difficult for us. It is not good for us to let it all hang out. Now again, we may think, oh, that's just being sincere. That's just being authentic. Well... It is being authentically, in many cases, untrustworthy. It is not insincere and inauthentic to reach the decision, that person told me that thing or met with me in confidence. I need to guard that. You're not being insincere or deceptive in not revealing that to other people. you are being a trustworthy guardian of that person's confidence and dignity in not revealing those things. Um, There are exceptions to this. Crimes. Um, I will reveal crimes. I have to. In many cases, I'm a mandatory reporter. If I discover that there is a crime, especially of abuse, physical, sexual abuse, this is not in the same category because my role there is to preserve the well-being of the person who is the victim of a crime. Um, so in, in those cases, there are exceptions to that, but um, that is a pretty rare thing. Even though it has happened, it is a rare thing. And I would encourage you, view yourself as the trustee of the secrets of the people around you. Care for them and um, guard their dignity. Um, So we've got two things here. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. 
the slanderer doesn't care about the dignity of anybody. The slanderer just goes right on, says whatever is on his or her mind, reveals secrets, uncovers things, and lets the chips fall where they may. Um, Your friendships are going to be among those chips that are going to fall. And uh, the scriptures have no good to say about slanderers. So there is something that is a bright, clear line in the book of Proverbs and throughout all the rest of Scripture. Uh, And it really goes back to the devil himself. Satan is a slanderer. He's the accuser, remember. And so there's there's a very important um, priority here that we need to respect. So... How do we not nourish friendships? How, how might we poison friendships? Derogatory comments, either to someone's face or behind their back, slander. These are sure ways to torpedo close relationships. Let's move on and talk about how do we see the fruit of a godly and nourishing relationship. What does that look like? Turn with me to Proverbs 27 verses 9 and 10. A well-nourished, wise friendship is characterized by sweetness. Sweetness is pleasurable. It's fun. It's delightful. And a godly friendship, a wise friendship, always has that kind of quality to it. Um, So here's how Solomon puts it in verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. These are luxuries. Um, The image here is kind of of a banquet where the host would supply perfumed oil to his guests. And uh, why, why would you do that? To fill their hearts with gladness. To give them a sweet smell that they would enjoy. Um, there is, it, I don't know whether you uh, have heard this or not, but somebody told me that the sense of smell is the most powerful um, connector with memories that we have. The sense of smell is like, is, is like your library card to all your memories. And so um, my grandmother, and she's with the Lord now, she had a very particular perfume that she always wore. I have no idea what it is, the other, what it was or the name of it or anything. But the other day, I was somewhere uh, outside and a, a woman walked by who wore that perfume. And I smelled that and it was like, bing, grandma. She's right there. And uh, that I didn't uh, chase down the woman and say, you're my grandmother, but... You know, all that emotion and memory and feeling was there because that's the smell that she had associated with her. Um, there is, uh, we're in the happy position of having lots of babies at this church. There's a thing about babies. There, there's a, a smell that they have. I'm, I'm told it's, it's even coming from their heads that is just this immediate bonding thing. What's that? It's heavenly, yes. There are, of course, less heavenly uh, smells, uh, but uh, that particular one is a a heavenly thing. And so, you know, whenever it's been a a number of years since we had babies in the house, and so whenever I get that smell, bam, we're right back there to the first days of of parenting. Uh, Why? Because it is... It is a source of pleasure that goes so deep and it unlocks our emotions and it just kind of frees us up, opens us up. This is saying 
Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and they do. And then Solomon says this as a comparison with that, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Isn't that interesting? We're going to talk about earnest more uh, in, in a moment, but just think of that idea that here is that person who is proven over and over and over again through the tough stuff they have been there for you and they have been faithful to you they have guarded your secrets they've given you good counsel so when you go into conversation with that friend you open up your heart opens up and that sense of safety pleasure warmth it's all right there Uh, maybe in saying this you might be uh, kind of grieving. You might be saying, it has been a very long time since I had that kind of conversation with a friend. It's been a very long time since I had that feeling coming to church. It's been a very long time since the pleasure of that faithfulness and faithful counsel has opened me up. I feel guarded, shut down, defensive, suspicious. And if if these are the two emotional worlds that we're describing here and, and you're saying, I haven't felt that kind of sweetness in years or I have never felt that. I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I can imagine it, but I have never actually experienced that pleasure, then what I would do is I would bring this as a matter of prayer before the Lord to say, Lord, there is something in me that needs to be healed. I need your your touch here. I need your counsel. I need your spirit to open me up and and help me in my character and in my persistence and in my faithfulness as a steward of other people's secrets. I need you to to build and help me build friendships so that I can experience this again. Somebody sent me an article that said eight out of ten people surveyed have no friends. Wow. That's a profound insight into what's going on in our culture. If the only friendships you've got are the scoffing kind, the flattering kind, the the junk food friendship, weeds, and you don't have somebody where that sweetness of confidence is there, then um, we are facing unhealed wounds in your spirit and this may be the moment where you recognize that and you say Lord that's me heal me show me what to do here Um, so this is a very important issue let's talk about the the next characteristic of this oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel earnest what is this I was fascinated by this Uh, looking into this word, it's really just the word for soul. Nefesh just means life. Soul and life are the same idea in the Hebrew word nefesh. If someone uh, takes away your nefesh, they have not only taken away your soul, they have killed you. And so the sense of this this, um, verse here is that the sweetness from a friend comes from his soulful, vital, living counsel. It's earnest. And so the the English um, Standard Version, the, the translators are going with this word earnest as a way of portraying what is behind this idea. When your friend counsels you, they're all in. They are committed. Their counsel is completely sincere and is coming from a deep place. 
They are not just giving you a brush-off, gimmicky solution to your problem. They're not just touching the surface of what you're working on in your life. They're going down deep into themselves and what the Spirit of God has done in them, and they're bringing that deep stuff out to help you. And that earnest, committed, soulful, living counsel is sweet. So you can see why it's sweet, and you can see why it's like perfume. It just just opens you up. When you see that someone is giving you counsel, and they are absolutely committed to you, they are not just kind of standing off to the side and throwing you a bone, saying, ah, buck up, it'll all work out. That can be like poison to your spirit if what you need from that person is to take the time, open the ears to reach deeper and go further in counsel toward what you actually need to hear. Now that kind of friendship, that's a life-giving thing. So how do you nourish a friendship? You've got a goal here. That goal is to create that kind of sweetness like perfume that, that says, in this friendship, I am here for you. I am not going anywhere. You can count on me. I'm going to guard your secrets. I am, e- even when you're in the wrong, you need to hear that. I am not going to belittle you. I, you are safe with me. That kind of sweetness is the goal of a godly friendship. You can nourish a friendship by creating that. You can also nourish it by taking that time to listen to what somebody says to you and go deep and say, you know, I am really committed to you. Let me tell you about something that really hurt me. And because I think it has a bearing on what you're going through right now, or at least it'll, it'll let you know that I understand what you're going through right now. So that kind of earnest, committed counsel is, uh, is what nourishes a friendship. Boy, when you have that, when you have a safe relationship, you just want to go back and back and back and back. You don't want to leave that. You don't want to trash it. It nourishes you and it nourishes the relationship itself. And that's why verse 10 goes on in this way. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better a neighbor slash friend who is near than a brother who is far away. This kind of friend... Who, has, who opens up your emotions and, and allows you to drop your guard. This kind of friend who does this for you is a friend you really must not forsake. This is a friend you need to nourish and, and commit to that friendship because it's good for you and it's good for them. Um, don't forsake it. Don't leave it. Um, and this is where you go in the day of your calamity. A couple of thoughts on this. This thing about not forsaking your father's friend, I might add your mother's friend. If there is someone who I know has known and been a friend of my mom and dad for a long time or a friend of my grandparents for a long time, I take special care with those relationships. I don't want those relationships to be dishonored or split or forsaken in any way. Because, why? There is a longevity there. There's a history there. There's a history of safety and a long track record there that you don't blow off. If you're wise, you've got sense. You stick with those people. And um, it doesn't guarantee that it always works out. It, it hasn't always worked out, but it has served me well because longevity is irreplaceable. How do you replace 
a 30-year relationship? You don't. So there's, there's something here about building safety and sweetness and confidence into your life by not forsaking that friend. This is a point that Solomon has made in the immediate context back in verse 8. Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. You belong here. Your affection, attention, your desires should be steered here to the nest. Notice this is not saying this about a woman. It's saying this about a man. This is saying that it will say this about women in other Proverbs. I'm not saying it's disallowing women from this, it's, but I'm making the point here that this is not a masculine or feminine thing. Men need to be faithful to their long-standing covenant relationships. It's good for you. It's nourishing to you. It's safe. And so a, a man who leaves that uh, family, the, those long-standing friends, forsakes his father's friends, is straying from his nest. He's going to leave precious things unguarded, and he's not going to be safe himself. Um, one more thing in the context here, and this drops us down to verse 17. How do you nourish a friendship? By having a high tolerance for clashes. Verse 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You could also say one woman sharpens another. Uh, literally, one man sharpens another's face. And that turn of phrase is kind of interesting to me. It, it's... Um, uh, it could be good or it could be bad. Conflict can sharpen you in a bad way by making you bitter, spiteful, vengeful. But clashes in a friendship that have, a, that, that have built a high tolerance for sparks. Hey, we just, we just disagreed there. When you've got a high tolerance for that, you don't take that personally, you make an allowance for that, it's going to sharpen you in a good way. You'll be sharper in finding that, um, boy, you know, I just really overstated my case there about broccoli. I, I should not have condemned all broccoli in all dishes. I should have been a little bit sharper and made some finer distinctions that broccoli in these cases could be good, even though I've never seen that, and broccoli in these other cases is definitely evil and bad for you. So I could have made that distinction if I had been sharper. But now that I've clashed with you and I've seen the sparks fly, I kind of learned. Don't overstate your case. Dial it back a little bit. Be a little more circumspect with the opinions about things because you just don't know when you might be crossing swords with somebody and uh, they're a little sharper than you are. See how this works? The sparks in your relationships are opportunities. They're not signs that it's over. They're not signs that someone hates you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Disagreement, conflict, clashes are the stuff that strong relationships are made of. And it's why we don't slander each other because we want, when those clashes happen, we want that to be a secret thing. It happened back here, but when it's over, it's over. And it doesn't poison our other relationships and it doesn't ruin reputations. It's over and it's done with and we move on from there. Or when someone uh, tells me something that is uh, deeply painful, we absorb that, we work it through together, and we are faithful uh, to each other in respecting those secrets and we don't belittle each other about that. Sparks are good if you've got a tolerance for them. 
And so this, this verse here is a, a call to be less sensitive, more open to the fact that sparks happen. The clash of iron against iron happens. And it's a good thing, a growing thing. It does not have to be, and indeed should not be, a thing that destroys a relationship. When friends agree about everything, I'm not sure you've got a friendship there. I think you may have something else. Maybe it's flattery, maybe it's scoffing. But agreement and conformity on every point with no clashes, you got a weed. That's not going to nourish your relationships. Uh, so some strong words that introduce us to the fact that we are stewards of our relationships and God has called us to nourish them, deepen them, strengthen them with sweetness, occasionally sharpness, but in all cases, um, strength and soulfulness. I would just say um, on this point, uh, one of the things that I've been so fortunate with in this church uh, in these years is uh, to have developed relationships with elders and deacons where uh, it's safe. I know that I am safe with them. And I know that when I open my heart and mind to them, they're going to treat that with respect, regard. They're going to guard me and I them. And when there are clashes with which there are, we're just going to get sharper. We're going to make finer distinctions. We're going to solve the problem and then we'll be stronger for it. There, that kind of relationship is invaluable. And I just want you to know that I feel that about the leaders of this church. And it, is, it has been a hard-won thing and a precious thing. And it's a thing that we want to keep, and we will keep it by the grace of God. Let's look finally at the root of our friendships. Turn with me to John 21. If you're looking at this and saying, I don't have the first clue about how to do any of this, then what we need to do is go back to the root of the matter, and that is our relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. John chapter 21, we looked at this last week. Peter has basically said, I'm out of here. I'm going fishing, and not for recreation. I'm leaving this ministry and I'm going back to the, the, the calling that I had before as a fisherman and that's how I'm going to make my money. And other guys went with him. Jesus pursues them to the shore of the Sea of Galilee and as you know this story, he confronts Peter with that wound that is in their relationship. As we saw last week, that's a hard confrontation. It's wounding. He asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter each time uses a lesser word for love than Jesus uses. Yeah, you, you know, I think you're the best. Got a lot of affection for you. You're my kind of guy. And Jesus says, do you agape me? Will you sacrifice for me? Do you love me, Peter? Of course, you're the best. I like you a lot. Peter, do you like me a lot? Look at what it says. John 21 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Is it because it was the third time? Yes. Is it was because Jesus said, do you like me a whole lot the third time? Yes, it's both of those. It was wounding, but it was necessary. 
And as we saw last week, that wound was in faithfulness. It was limited. Jesus is not belittling Peter here. Even though this is happening in front of the other disciples, this is an an act of restoration. He's saying to them, just as much as to Peter, Peter's in. Peter's my guy. And he says to Peter three different times, feed my lambs. You're going to be my under-shepherd here. Get back to your job. Leave the nets again. Jesus gives Peter earnest counsel. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That is soulful, earnest counsel. Jesus is the ultimate safe friend. He's saying to Peter, I've gone to the cross for you. I know, Peter, that you wanted to go even to prison and to death for me, but you didn't do it. I want you to know you will do it and I will be there with you when it happens. And it will not be like the last time this happened. It will be a new thing in your life where you will show your faithfulness to me and your fidelity to me. It's going to be hard, but I know how hard it is and I am there with you in it. That soulful committed counsel Jesus is not throwing him a bone he's not saying let's move on he's saying let's dig down deep and go through this together I want you to notice the move that Peter makes next another indication of how safe Jesus is verse 20 Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's John, right? The author of this gospel. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Tell me, Lord Jesus, the secrets that you have in store for him in the future. Let's confer about our brother John here. Does Jesus do that? No. His reply to Peter, verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, I'm going to deal with you, Peter, on your own issues and I'm going to deal with John on his issues and I'm not going to tell you how I'm dealing with him I'm not going to tell you what my plan is for him because you don't need to know that Peter you need to focus on yourself in relation to me this is safe he's keeping a boundary here between these two men he's not going to belittle one to the other he's not going to reveal secrets one to the other he's going to treat them as the individuals that they are this is characteristic of how Jesus deals with people throughout the Gospels what are we saying if you need to nourish your friendships then you need this man Jesus you need him to be nourishing your character, changing your character, dealing with you on all of these kinds of issues. You need his friendship with you. That will nourish your friendships with others. And if I'm repeating this and have repeated it over the last three weeks, there's a reason. It's true and it's really important. It will change your life and it will change your relationships to know Jesus, our true friend, who sticks closer than a brother. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask you to be at work in our hearts right now. If there is someone here who does not know you, you know who that person is. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon them to 
cry out to you and say something like this. Lord, I need your friendship. I've got a life full of weeds. It's of my own making. I need forgiveness. I need a safe place to change and transform. Will you forgive me? I know that you died for me. And I know that you put your spirit in people so that they will live for you. And I'm asking you for that right now. Lord, if someone asks you for your Holy Spirit for forgiveness right now, I pray that you would pour out your spirit and grace and power. Give them assurance in this moment that they now belong to you and that you are calling them friend. And so we all call upon your name right now and we ask you to make us into the friends that you have called us to be. We ask you to do it in your name and for your sake and we pray it for your glory. God's people said, Amen. We're going to take a few moments to answer some questions here. If you uh, need to slip out at this point, I uh, would uh, encourage you to take this moment to do that. Um, uh, this is kind of an add-on to the service. Let's see here. Thank you. In Proverbs 27.10, why does it say not to tell your brother who lives far away about your business, but rather the one nearby? Very good question. This is saying that sometimes, very often, a friend is more valuable in a calamity than a family member. And basically what he's saying is if your friend slash neighbor is near to you and you've got that relationship with them where you know they're safe and you know they're committed to you, go to them. Um, brothers, family can be very conflicted. You inherit your family. Uh, friendships you build. If you built that friendship, then go to that friend. Um, now, there would be exceptions to that. Uh, uh, where clearly if, if your brother is that kind of person, I'm fortunate to have one of those, then you go to your brother. But that's really because you build a friendship with that brother. It's not just the, the tie of, of blood that, um, that accomplishes that. Another question. Why do you always give the sermon after I've committed the sin? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I don't have the gift of prophecy. If I did, I could prevent a whole lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a good one. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, <clears throat> uh, iron versus iron. In machine shop, uh, an example of a lathe that sharpens a tool, but... It's loud and noisy, sparks fly, and there is heat generated. And it's very important when finished, you kind of need to plunge that iron into water or the tool can be warped. In other words, yeah, it gets hot, sparks fly, and it's noisy. Get it in some cool water again. Cool that thing down. Uh, do the work. And I, I think this is a, a great point. It's very important for us to after the moment of a clash or a sparks flying to say, let's build this back up again. Let's, uh, let's be quick to encourage and, and quick to show all of that affection again and uh, keep short accounts that way. Let's not let it build. And I think this is an important principle um, in terms of nourishing friendships. Yes, clashes uh, do happen. They are. They can be big opportunities. They can also be opportunities for bitterness. Um, another question here. Um, uh, iron sharpens iron can be an excuse to be a jerk. How can you tell the difference? Very good question. Um, I would go back to uh, the idea of belittling. Iron sharpening iron 
is not malicious. Um, if it's abusive speech, name calling, um, these kinds of things where you're just, you're, you're very obviously working hard to take somebody down a notch. If that's what you've got, that's not iron sharpening iron. That's quarrelsome, that's abuse, that's angry uh, kind of speech. Iron sharpening iron is when one strong opinion just whacks into another one and it just kind of happens. And then you got to go at it until that matter is refined and resolved and, uh, and the disagreement um, healed or at least brought to a point where it's, it's uh, tolerable for the relationship. So I, I think um, uh, there is a certain personality. Uh, I know this because I, I am that personality. It kind of relishes in conflict and, and confrontation and clashing and arguing, those kinds of things. Um, I would just say, uh, this is not your verse. This is not my verse. Iron sharpens iron. That's going to take care of itself with me. I don't have to try to make that happen. It just does. I need to take care on the other side. Of after the clash, that's where I need to focus. I need to focus on that sweetness part of it, opening it back up, being safe, all of those kinds of things. So to a certain extent, you've got to know your own personality, but by no means claim the wounds of a friend verse or the iron sharpens iron verse as a, an excuse for just flat out castigating somebody and abusing them. There is no excuse for that. He who belittles his neighbor or friend lacks sense. So we got to get that sense deep into us. Very good questions. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go from this place, we ask you to go with us, to bless us, to give us wisdom, strength, and courage into the week that you have for us. And we will give you the glory as we walk together with you. And we ask you to do these things in your name and all God's people said, Amen.